Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. This is episode 29. Today, Danny and I cover a medley of headlines to include a Marine veteran protesting militarism at a Portland Trailblazers game, an update on all things Yemen and the humanitarian crisis there, and finally, Danny covers what we all missed this week in Afghanistan while the media was focused on the picture of a man carrying a rifle. Rifle upon my shoulder And a rucksack on my back Bullets, shells and shrapnel And a hellhound on my track When I made it to my home place I found triumph Shining city stood a fortress on a hill. Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. For those new to the show, Danny and I are two progressive veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and add some much needed context. Passed a headline the other day talking about that there's a tank plant in Ohio that President Trump saved, although there was nothing in the piece suggesting that he actually saved it. And all these headlines I'm mentioning, they will be in the show notes if you guys want to go read. So there's only one plant in the entire U.S. of A. that still manufactures the American military's main battle tank, the M1A2 Abrams. And that factory is government-owned. During the Obama years, the article mentioned it was only churning out, I think they said, one Abrams a month, which, of course, for an assembly line is incredibly slow. But we also don't use those anymore. Um, So the article just swoons about President Trump getting the factory producing again, not through any economic means, but simply through I'm the commander in chief. Let's get this thing making tanks again. No discussion if we really need the tanks or whether we'll still be producing this many tanks in a month. But a government owned production line is building tanks again. Hooray for everyone. Uh, 1.3 million Iraqi children were displaced by the war with the Islamic State. That is out in a new report from UNICEF on all the, uh, the refugee displacements that happened during that conflict. An al-Qaeda commander that is at uh, Guantanamo Bay right now is uh, just went through the process of getting several emergency surgeries. Uh, Nashwan al-Tamir, an Iraqi and believed to be a former Taliban and al-Qaeda leader, um, currently held at Guantanamo Bay, known as Gitmo, um, had just went through three different surgeries he needed for a degenerative disc disease. It was noted when he arrived at Guantanamo in 2007 that he had his disease, and since then he has needed several others to improve function and prevent paralysis. His attorneys haven't been able to find out what Nashwan's medical status was, learning of his emergency excuse me, multiple emergency surgeries through a court filing. It's clear that he received the treatment 
um, which he's needed for years now, simply to allow his continued participation in the tribunals against him, as prison doctors refused to clear him earlier this year, but it's not, still not clear yet if these procedure, procedures will make the difference. The Trump administration is using Nashwan's medical condition against him, as prior to this series of surgeries, prison docs were treating him with painkillers and back ointment. His attorneys are imploring the government to simply allow him time to heal. I'll jump in that for a second. Um, not necessarily to speak about his individual medical condition, although that is interesting and worrying. But more to talk about another story that we shouldn't sleep on, which is Guantanamo, it's still open. That would yep. be my headline. Guant Guantanamo, it's still open, question mark? Because no one even really talks about it anymore, okay? But, like, that guy, I don't know how long he's been in Guantanamo, but it's over a decade. 2007. And... Okay, so over a decade, and there are some people who have been there since like 2002, okay? Yeah. And, and the trials are moving along so slowly, and in many cases are not happening at all. You know why? Because the evidence against them is inadmissible because torture was used to get confessions. So they're now unprosecutable, but they're considered too dangerous to release. So where do they go? They go to limbo. They go to purgatory. How long? Forever. Forever. Bad guys, good guys, mostly bad probably, are being held at Guantanamo still with no real legal redress possible. No habeas corpus, even though the Supreme Court ruled that they do have that right. They're stuck in limbo because, one, the U.S. government got the evidence against them illegally, so they can't use it in federal court. One. And two, they're considered too dangerous to just release. So what's our answer? No answer. Our answer is to go is to close our eyes and go, no, 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 and not look, okay? And just keep them there for a decade or more. That's some medieval shit. It's against international law, and you bet your ass that it creates more terrorists than it deters. Absolutely it does. Um, the U.S. State Department says it is exempting Iran's big port project in Chabahar from sanctions in recognition of its importance to landlocked Afghanistan. Um, President Donald Trump's, quote, South Asia's strategy underscores our ongoing support of Afghanistan's economic growth and development, as well as our close partnership with India. Um, Iran late last year inaugurated the port on the Indian Ocean. It's being built largely by India um, and is expected to provide a key supply route for Afghanistan while allowing India to bypass rival Pakistan to trade with Central Asia and Africa. Iraq has asked the United States to consider how new sanctions against Iran will affect Iraq's economy in the long term. Uh, it, it, it's just going to make it more horrifying, whatever they happen to do. is, is Things that affect Iran affect Iraq. Um, yeah, short answer. I yeah, mean, yeah. yeah, short answer is Iran and Iraq are inextricably linked. So our sanctions on Iran, which are unnecessary because Iran is not seeking a nuclear weapon right now, uh, according to like American and international intelligence, everyone except Israel agrees. Uh, so we're, we're sanctioning Iran unnecessarily. And in the process, we're hurting the economy of Iraq, which is already on a shoestring and we need the Iraqi economy to be strong. Otherwise ISIS is going to come back. So it all kind of rolls up into a shitty mess. Yeah. And, uh, speaking again of Iraq, that their newly elected parliament has requested that all United States military forces leave Iraq. I only saw that one headline 
I didn't see anything else. I was surprised that it was going to, I thought it was going to be on the nightly news, but nobody yeah. said, said a word about that. So pretty big story there. Um, last time this happened, uh, was when Obama was president in 2011, the Iraqi parliament passed a law saying all of us had to leave. And then we all did leave. And then when ISIS came back, the Republicans blamed it on Obama. So here's the question. If the Iraqi parliament forces Trump to pull soldiers out, right, and then violence uh, spikes again in Iraq, will the Democrats blame Trump the same way that the Republicans blamed Obama? First of all, I doubt it, okay, because um, I think that for all their flaws, a lot of the Democrats have a little bit more of an open mind about this and a little more of a holistic view and are less apt to point fingers. But some of them will. Some of them will blame Trump. But the point is it was neither Obama's fault nor Trump's fault. The Iraqi parliament is a sovereign entity that has every right to kick us out if they want to. And we need to respect that because if we don't, we're an empire. Absolutely. Well, we're still an empire, but if we don't, then we're even more of an empire. Yeah, we're, we're, we're an empire squared at that point. Um, this is, this is my, my personal favorite one in this little rundown here. A, a Marine veteran who's a longtime member of the Portland, Oregon chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, here, here close to where I lived, he used winning a contest during a halftime show with the Portland Trailblazers to protest the Blazers allowing Leupold, uh, a scope manufacturer here in our area, to sponsor this halftime celebration of veteran service. They have this whole halftime heroes ceremony thing. And so um, this veteran got chosen for it. And when he was up there on the big screen, he unzipped his hoodie to show a T-shirt that said um, in this sponsor sponsorship hashtag no Leupold. They're specifically protesting about Leupold supplying scopes to the uh, Israeli Defense Force. Good for him. Absolutely. Hell yeah. No, it was, it was awesome. And he, yeah, I, I, kudos, dude, very much. Um, yeah, what, a, what a great opportunity. What a, sorry, but what a great opportunity to flip the like military adulation department, like the whole militarism at sports phenomenon. Like what a great opportunity to flip that on its head. Like kudos to him. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, they have started using white phosphorus bombs against ISIS in Syria, which is against international law. Um, Danny, you want to explain a little bit about what white phosphorus does? Yeah, I mean, it, it, essentially, it's it's banned by international law. It it it, it incinerates the flesh. It's um, it, it it's just one of the more horrific weapons that we have out there. And the United States has two sets of rules. Okay, there's international law for everybody else, and then there's American rules because we think it doesn't apply to us. That's why we won't sign the landmine treaties. That's why we won't sign on to the International Criminal Court. You know, and even if we do sign on to something, well, every once in a while we got to break it because you know why? Because national security. You know why? Because terrorism. I mean, there are so many loopholes in the whole system that like this doesn't surprise me at all. I'm not a surprise at all. Like. Why wouldn't we be using white phosphorus? We've already dehumanized the enemy. It's not that ISIS isn't horrible. We've already dehumanized the enemy into like bad brown people enough that why would we be surprised? Why wouldn't we use white phosphorus on them? I'm waiting for us to start using white phosphorus in urban riots in the United States against police violence. Okay, and I'm now I'm going off the wall a little bit, but I'm just frustrated. I mean, I can't help it. No, I I, I had the thought that they chose to do that because they were down to a very specific underground ISIS enclave, you know, trying, they want to, you know, ISIS always gets the worst of whatever we have to offer. Um, and so that, you know, 
for, you know, somehow in some way that they, you know, can they, you know, specifically order these kind of nasty bombs to use on these guys because they deserve to go to Allah a little bit more. It, it yeah, I, it's just fucking ri- ridiculous. In, in, since the death of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, there's been another Saudi journalist that um, passed away due to being tortured by Saudi authorities. Um, Turkey bin Abdul Aziz Al Jassar. He was a anonymous uh, Twitter. Uh, he, he used to tweet things that were against the crown in, in Saudi Arabia, um, but uh, that his his injuries from being imprisoned um, ultimately took his life. And it's believed that there were Saudi moles in Twitter's Dubai office in the United Arab Emirates that helped dox uh, the journalists. The moles are, I guess, quote unquote, considered part of the Saudi cyber army that works for Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. But but keep keep this in mind, folks. Did we we didn't hear shit about this guy? This guy died in almost. I mean, certainly not if, if empirically not as horrific as what could have happened to Jamal Khashoggi. But why aren't we talking about him? Why has he not been in the news as much as Khashoggi did? They died under almost identical circumstances, and yet we don't talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the I can't prove this, but it, it appears that the current administration doesn't want any more drama um, to get in the way of the Saudi-U.S. relationship. I mean, despite Khashoggi and despite Yemen and despite some harsh words from people like Lindsey Graham and some lightly harsh words from people like the president, there is no indication that the United States government intends to you know, extricate itself from its very tight military and political relationship with Saudi Arabia. So the last thing this administration needs is more bad news. Okay. And so that makes me suspicious. Okay. That makes me suspicious of why we didn't hear about this one. You know, um, I don't know if the U S Saudi relationship could weather many more storms of this sort before, um, at least the plurality of Congress starts asking tough questions right now. It's basically Chris Murphy on the left, and Rand Paul on the right, uh, that's asking questions about Yemen and Khashoggi. But it's uh, it's going to expand if more journalists uh, turn up dead and chopped up by bone saws. Um, but you're right; it's very, very suspicious that we have not uh, heard about this individual journalist yet. And, and, it, and it makes me want to remind everybody what the one reason we heard about Khashoggi in the first place, and that was that he worked at the Washington Post and had relationships Great with point. people at the Washington Post. If he had come to the United States, even if he had gotten his residency and had gone to work for Truth Dig or Truth Out or some other small outlet, there is no way in the world that major media would be up to bat for him and his memory and trying to figure out what happened. It's just it, not a fucking chance. That's a really good point. He was one of the good Arabs, right? Yeah. Because he worked for America. Yeah. He worked. He not only worked for America. He worked for our media, our mainstream media. You're right. I mean, you know, eighty-five thousand Yemeni children who starved to death. Like, they don't work for NBC. You know, they don't work for the Washington Post. So, do they really matter? Eh, not if there's a better story. Not if there's some sex stuff. You know, but Jamal Khashoggi. You know, totally a victim. Totally a good guy. Like important story, but like. Look, he was close to the levers of media power. And we know that American media is owned by what? About four or five different companies total. Yep. Mega companies that control the news that we get. I mean, you know, I mean, I write for Truth Dig. If the American if the American government assassinated me, which they wouldn't do, hopefully, 
it probably wouldn't be that big of a story. It'd be covered up. It'd be no big deal, you know, because no one cares about alternative media. But if something happens, like when that journalist got kicked out of the room by Trump a couple weeks back, I forget who he worked for, but it was one of the mainstream outlets, CNN, I think. Uh, it was like a major story. And all that happened was he got kicked out of a room and he was spoken impolitely to, you know. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. That's, that's why the Khashoggi story is a story, because he worked close to the levers of media power. And the, the, the corporations run this country. There are owners and no one cares um, about anyone that's not close to the media establishment. Not a bit. The Ministry of Defense in the United Kingdom is petitioning to stop recruiting 16 and 17 year olds. Um, they uh, they had they had raised the age for Commonwealth citizens, which are British citizens who may come from other countries or other ways that they're connected to the United Kingdom. But they're um, they live there, but they're they're called Commonwealth citizens. So the those ones were changed a while ago, but not the generally Caucasian 16 and 17 year old British citizens. And this fits in with some other stories I've shared about recruiting and about the talking to kids at that tender age when they are very susceptible to almost anything. So this, this was uh, pursued along that vein. I hope that they are able to raise it for all British citizens. And I hope that we're able to make some changes here in the United States in that way, because we should not be pursuing kids that young to, to be in the military. It's a really dangerous age. You know, you're, we've, we've proven scientifically that you're, you know, here's what's interesting. Um, the logic, there's two pieces of logic that led to the change in age of drinking from 18 to 21 during the 1970s. The first piece of logic was um, the statistics on road fatalities when 18 to 21-year-olds are allowed to drink. And the second one was um, actual biological data on the brain. Okay, and and the the argument of the specialists of the experts was that the 18 to 20 year old brain isn't developed enough to make the right decisions. Therefore, we have the big brother state has to say they can't drink alcohol. But those same mental, you know, um, mental immaturity factors in the brain should apply to military decision-making, shouldn't they? I mean, that seems like an even more important decision. Like, the decision to go to Afghanistan seems like a bigger decision than, like, whether you're allowed to have a Budweiser with your dad at the local gin mill, you know? Uh, So it's very fascinating how, like, the Big Brother state determines when to be paternalistic and controlling and when to be, like, laissez-faire and do as you will. And it's, it's just very interesting to me that when it comes to serving in the military, which is uh, something we need our automatons to do, you and I included, that we're willing to, like, fuck the science, you know what I mean? Ignore that to let them serve in the military. But if when they come home after a year of watching their friends get blown apart and then they drink in the barracks underage, it's an Article 15. Just the whole thing. The whole thing is just so backwards and no one even questions it. We're all sheep and we just go along with it. Yeah, no, it is. After you and I went through that uh, that blast pressure information earlier this year, and, and reading about that, and you know that that's stuff that all soldiers go through in one way or another. You know, you're around loud noises. You can't you can't get around it being a soldier. But how do we know who might have been harmed by it and who hasn't? We we, we don't even like you said that the the information on that is still you know it's still in studies. It's it's it yeah it, it's just ridiculous. You're absolutely right. 
So I passed an article that I had to share with you guys about uh, low IQ draftees that were chosen during the Vietnam War after Vietnam uh, leaders could not make their numbers. Um, I don't have really any more specific to say about that. I'm certainly going to link it in the show notes, but these are the kind of choices the government makes, like what Danny and I are talking about right now in terms of trying to make somebody else happy when you're destroying human lives right in front of you. Those are the choices that leaders like that make. Um, Rust costs the United States Department of Defense $21 billion a year. I don't know that that means much more, needs much more explanation, but you know, the bottoms of ships, the insides of rifle barrels, there are just a, a, a trillion ways that there could be rust on, on all the stuff that we use. And, and so fighting it, I'm surprised we actually don't spend more than $21 billion a year on fighting rust. Um, I found an article talking about some statistical connections between veterans and mass shooters. And it's something I do want to talk about. I don't have any specific stuff I want to point out right now, but if anybody has come across any articles that talk about anything like that, please send it to me. I'm looking for information. Uh, Army, the Army Secretary has said non-commissioned officers, NCOs, should visit barracks on weekends to prevent suicide. What do you think about that, Danny? Yeah, that's the solution, right? The solution to veteran suicide and to active duty suicide, which is an epidemic, the solution is just more sergeants in the barracks or more officers in the barracks. Like, mm-hmm. come on. Look, I was a company commander. You were a squad leader. It is important to have, you know, to have leadership officer and especially non-commissioned officer in the barracks, just checking on the guys, knowing their habits, knowing their weaknesses, knowing their vulnerabilities. Like, look, that's just good leadership. But like, do not try to sell me that this is a suicide prevention technique. I mean, this is like putting a Band-Aid on a gaping open chest wound, okay? Because the factors leading to suicide are so immense that like these sort of Band-Aid sort of deflective measures are not going to solve the problem. You know, it's like saying, you know, that the the way we're going to stop veteran suicides is by having policemen check under the bridges at night for, for, you know, veterans who are sleeping there. Like, you know, rather than the social welfare network that we need and the VA support network and like changes in hiring practices. I mean, those are the real issues, right? Okay. As well as mental health care and the availability, availability of such and of insurance for preventative health care. But, like, we don't want to look at those big problems. Instead, it's like put more officers and soldiers and, and NCOs in the barracks. It's, it's a joke. It's, again, Band-Aid on an open chest wound. It's, it, it's ludicrous, but it's so typical of, of, of you know, standard obtuse military thought. It really is. It really goes right to their their thinking about certain things. How the it's clear that whatever leaders were involved in this never got anywhere close to the idea of someone they actually knew killing themselves and how they might connect with that. It was like it was a a, a TM, a, a technical manual reading, or some other kind of shit like that. Yep. Um, yeah, I'll tell you uh, real quick as a you know personal vignette as a soldier uh, as an officer who had uh, two suicides. Uh, happened directly under his command and one uh, overdose that had potential suicidal ideations involved with it, um, you don't always see it coming. And saying hello in the barracks and, you know, smoking a cigarette with them together once in a while in the motor pool 
uh, outside the motor pool, uh, it wasn't going to solve those problems. Okay. And, and, and the guilt that I carry is mine, but I also recognize that the issues were a lot bigger than me or what I did. In fact, that's narcissistic. Thing. No, it, it was, you, you touched on it earlier perfectly that the, the going to the barracks, being in the barracks is about leadership. It's about being a good leader. Like I said, in, you know, being where the metal meets the meat. Um, the idea that, that it, it, now we can make this, this one little bullet point and somehow it's going to help. And, and the, 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 the thing that bothers me the most is that we're continually told leaders like you and I are told that it could help so that after the fact, if somebody does hurt and or kill themselves, those are questions that are left with us who are still here. You know, and, and again, that, that totally skips over the whole main suicide question. But it's important to understand that as veterans, you know, I've lost several friends since I got out. You can't you can't just pretend that it's it's that simple, that it's that easy. And so much of what the army solutions the army chooses to do are, you know, yeah, send NCOs to the barracks on the weekends and the sergeants. They'll take care of it. It's no problem. No big deal. We, we've got it taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. The V.A., has finally linked hypertension to Agent Orange exposure. There was it's something that they've been studying for a while. They hadn't been able to officially do it, but it has that has officially happened. So if anybody you know is a veteran and has hypertension and served in the Vietnam War, have them send that stuff off to the VA. If they've gotten appealed and it's gotten turned down, have them send it off too. It, you'd be surprised at how many ordinary human body things the Army caused at least in my body, to go completely fucking haywire. Um, the VA is moving hundreds of doctors from uh, union administration spots back to providing care for veterans. Um, this has to do with the Trump administration spat with several different federal unions, um, but the, they don't want... Um, they don't want these docs using uh, official time, uh, uh, labor time, union time, um, that is paid for by the VA. And they mentioned it to the tune of, I can't remember how many million dollars a year. But what they fail to realize is that this protects those doctors. It protects them, their positions, their all that stuff. And it just kind of fits in the normal bullshit basket that our president has against uh, against unions. You'll like this one, Danny. Absolutely. You'll like this one. One in five generals couldn't deploy for medical reasons in 2016. Fascinating. Because we demonize, we demonize soldiers and junior officers and, and and NCOs who are undeployable or non-deployable for a number of reasons, and yet you never even hear about the number of generals that are that are equally unfit, you know. And I'm not even necessarily blaming the generals, but it, it is interesting to wonder how you get to that high of a level. Um, in a non-deployable state, or maybe it happens late in their careers because of their, their advanced age. But it's funny. You never hear that kind of report, do you? Well, so, some of them were for, uh, for dental. Same. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was, uh, it, it's one thing about both when you're getting deployed and when you're leaving the army that you run around your army post, having people sign all kinds of checklists and little boxes that you turned in this equipment or went to this briefing or attended this appointment or whatever it happens to be. And dental is one of those things. And so if you don't go to the dentist within a certain amount of time before a deployment, they'll tell your chain of command that you're not deployable. And oh, their asses get on fire, don't they, Danny? Oh, man. 
I mean, as a company commander, I spent more time getting yelled at because someone didn't go to the dentist than about like my tactical abilities in combat. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, was, it 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 just it made me laugh out loud. I I'm I'm gonna keep tracking that for a while. I bet we'll hear some really stupid stories about what generals can get away with with their health. There's uh, there's a strong possibility that several of the northern Marianas Islands will become bombing ranges for the United States Navy. Um, this is a story I heard on a episode of Chapo Trap House. And it's important to understand that I'm uh, in that area of the world. So many islands in the in the in the South Pacific have been used as bombing ranges and shooting ranges, and it destroys the environment. It 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 does, and so it, it's not something that I can cover um, at, at the moment. But keep an eye out for that. And if you have time, listen to that episode of from uh, Chapo Trap House. It's it's excellent. The Trump administration is demanding that the Supreme Court immediately rule on the ban on transgender people serving in the military, saying the premise of allowing them to serve is preventing the military from doing its constitutionally appointed duties. Quote, the proposed policy in question went to the president in February from SecDef James Mattis. Those rules would disqualify service members who require or have undergone gender transition Individuals without a history of gender dysphoria would be required to serve under their biological sex. That re- proposal replaced President Trump's plan to ban all service, all transgender service members. Um, Mattis had argued that the Obama-era policy relied heavily on a 2016 RAND study um, commissioned by the Department of Defense that he is quoted as saying contained significant shortcomings. It's it's no different than don't ask, don't tell. This, I mean, not not to quantify that in the same breath with with uh, with uh, gay soldiers, but the it's going in the same way. Um, however, the courts are fighting back really hard, and I, I think that they're gonna. It's still going to get ruled on in the court anyway. So, uh, the VA isn't perfect, providing benefits correctly to veterans with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, known uh, also known as LA. ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and it's, it's a pretty rare disease. So it's, it's kind of interesting that uh, upon inspection, the 430 of the cases contained errors. Of those, 230 claimants were awarded the wrong benefits. Uh, most received no money or were underpaid, as is normal for the VA. Uh, in other cases, officials couldn't determine whether the benefits VA paid were too low or too high. Um, they estimate if the errors continue at the same rate over the next five years, the VA will fail to pay $7.5 million in benefits and award an additional $6.5 million in erroneous benefits. Now, it's important for people to understand that don't have experience with the VA that certain ailments and illnesses are given a higher classification. Um, ALS, certainly given that it's, it's debilitating and it's progressive and it's, it, it kills people, um, certain kinds of cancer, or actually it's most kinds of cancer, um, a, a lot of really major things. And the VA actually does pay them more money in those times. And I think it's really great that they do. But this right here goes to show that the, the, the attentiveness that people need to pay with making sure that veterans do get the benefits they're talking about. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Now we're going to move on to a couple of things about Yemen here. And First, we have, it's now believed that 85,000 children have died in the war in Yemen. And that came from, uh, that came from UNICEF. So it, it's a pretty reliable number. 
Um, and that is just starvation, as far as I, I can tell. I don't think that that talks about bombing deaths or other Yeah, stuff. no, that's just starvation. Yeah, that's just, right. Just starvation. So um, the Trump administration may declare the Houthis a terrorist organization. Danny, you want to give a little background on what that means? Yeah, that's really problematic. Okay, um, the Houthis are um, a Zaidi Shia, okay, which is one of the more um, obscure branches of Shiism, uh, tribal organization that is named after their former leader, whose last name was al-Houthi, and they control northern and western Yemen, as they have for quite some time, and they're engaged in a war with Saudi Arabia. The thing about the Houthis is there is no evidence ever of a Houthi attack on American soil or on American personnel. Okay? Now, don't get me wrong. When we started supporting the Saudis who bombed their children to death and starved their children to death, they do yell out as their like, rallying cry, like, death to America, death to Israel, death to the Jews. So like, I'm not saying they're all great guys, but they started saying that shit when we started supporting the Saudis. Before that, they pretty much ignored us. You never ever hear of like a Shia, Zaidi, Yemeni hopping on a plane and like flying it into a building. No, the people who do that are from countries we're allied with, like Egypt and Lebanon and Saudi Arabia, notably. Um, this, is a, this is another stunt. This is another stunt that, that plays with language, okay, that toys with and stretches languages beyond its meaning. There is nothing about the Houthi movements that would define them as terrorists or as a threat to the United States specifically. There's no evidence for it. If the Houthis are terrorists, right, having killed zero Americans, okay, but the Saudis aren't terrorists, having starved to death 85,000 children, non-combatants, then I don't know what the word terrorism means anymore, to be honest. Because that, that, well, I'll say it first of all, that word has lost all meaning to me. The life has been sucked out of that word. It's meaningless at this point. And the Houthis as terrorists, it's a joke. It's a joke. Anybody who understands, anyone with any expertise in Yemen would tell you that the Houthis are many things, some of which are not so great, but they're not an international terrorist organization, for God's sake. No, it's, it's, it's like you said, it's just a, it's just a fucking language stunt. And um, a little bit of good news here. Finland and Denmark have joined Germany in ceasing all weapons sales to Saudi Arabia over their war crimes in Yemen, along with the continuing fallout of uh, the death of Jamal Khashoggi. So, I mean, granted, we're still selling the most weapons to them of anybody, but the fact that certain major powers have been willing to say that they won't sell anything to Saudi Arabia anymore. That's, that's great. I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's definitely a good thing. Cause anytime the rest of the world makes us look bad, anytime the rest of the world helps shame us, I actually am in favor of that. Um, because I, I want us to be called out for our inconsistencies and our crimes and our complicity. I'm actually in favor of that. I think that makes me a better American than if I just blindly followed my government. Agreed. 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 So the last thing on the on the the Yemen train today is uh, an article that I mentioned I wasn't going to talk about before from BuzzFeed about how former American special operations soldiers were contracted to assassinate political leaders in Yemen. So 
I'm, I want to do a bigger story on this, but I want you guys to, to hear about it and let us toss it around, the idea around a little bit. In the United States, if you're a military officer and you want to work for a foreign power, you have to register with the State Department. But enlisted men don't have that issue. And usually that wouldn't be such a thing because our skill set would not really help as much as, as hiring an officer would. But what if we're talking about special forces? What if we're talking about former SEALs, former Delta? These particular guys, they were actually given the rank of the UAE, of the Emiratis that are helping Saudi Arabia there, specifically so they could be considered lawful combatants. So we, we can't, we, we would never be able to do anything about it, at least as far as their connection to us. Is that right, Danny, that they, that they're, they owe America no more allegiance in that way as far as registering with the government? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how I understand it. So it brings up a lot of questions uh, for me about this. And we've talked also about extremists joining the military and trying to use the military as a, a training grounds of sorts. And there are so many different areas that, you know, military things could lend themselves to extremists, you know, rifle, pistol training, basic small unit tactics, first aid, combatives, communications, um, this is something else that should be considered when people want to join the military too. That do people ask, you know, to ask enlistees, you know, why are all the reasons you want to join and, and have them kind of flesh out that idea a bit, because it's clear that some of these other people, you know, like uh, what's this uh, Dylan Hopper, that Marine Corps recruiter, that it doesn't seem like people talk to him much, or if they did, they sure didn't give a shit about what he thought. Um, but, and, and there's have been extremists, that are not simply on the American far right. There was the attack by Nadal Hassan on service members in Fort Hood. He was radicalized uh, through a, a correspondence with Anwar al-Awlaki, um, who's the al-Qaeda figurehead and American citizen that President Obama killed with a drone. But I really think it's important to, to keep all this in, in that frame of mind. You know, Should SEALs or Green Berets or Marine Marsoc, should these guys be required to register with some government entity if they're going to take their work elsewhere. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that's it. Yeah, no, I think it's an important point. Um, and, uh, and I think it's something we should think about, you know, that that might be, that may be a course of action that's necessary. Absolutely. Oh, really one quick before, before we jump off, and I know we're not on Yemen anymore, but, um, before we jump off, most of you will hear this after the vote, but today, you know, we're speaking on uh, Wednesday, the 28th of November. You know, in, in less than an hour, the Senate is going to vote on Senate Joint Resolution 54, which would end America's ongoing military support of the Saudi war in Yemen. I don't expect it to pass, but the word is that it has a better chance of passing than any other legislation um, of this type. So, when you hear this, okay, go back and see how your senator voted, okay, and think about whether you agree with how your senator voted, and don't be afraid to vote them out if you disagree with them, and don't be afraid to call their office and get on their ass, okay, because this vote, Senate Joint Resolution, SJ Resolution 54, um, to end the support for the war in Yemen is on the table. It's going to be voted on today. By the time you listen to this three or four days from now, you'll know how your senator voted, so pay attention. Good call, Dan. Good call. 
All right, guys. So um, for the 30,000th time, I'm going to bring up Afghanistan, but I promise not to rant too long. Um, a lot of shit happened, okay, in Afghanistan. Now, you wouldn't know it from the media reporting, but a lot of shit happened over the week before and after uh, Thanksgiving. We'll call, I'll call it the Thanksgiving extended holiday. During that time, a U.S. Army Ranger was shot and killed. Uh, now, uh, it looks like it was friendly fire from an Afghan, accidental friendly fire from an Afghan soldier that killed him. That's what the latest reports say. And then uh, a few days back, uh, three soldiers were killed when their vehicle rolled over an IED. That's the largest single loss of life in Afghanistan in a long time for the American forces. Um, other stuff has happened. Um, on Thanksgiving Day, 26 Afghan soldiers were killed in combat. Um, a few days later, 22 policemen were killed in combat on a single day. And then uh, I think it was yesterday that 30 Afghan civilians were killed in a single day uh, during fighting in Helmand province. So major events that are indicating, uh, as I will argue, if you check out our Patreon account, you'll be able to see the preview, um, as I will argue, which is that the United States and its Afghan allies are about to militarily lose in Afghanistan. Now that goes against the prevailing maxim, doesn't it? The prevailing thought process, which is America might lose the war politically because of those dovish, weak, Democrat, liberal pussies at home, but America will never lose militarily. I'm here to tell you that after 17 plus years of war, it looks like America is going to militarily lose that war. Okay, Unless we want to send 100,000 soldiers there to play for a tie forever, because that's the best we can do with 100,000 soldiers, as we learned in 2010 through 13, unless we're ready to like do a stalemate indefinitely by sending half, you know, uh, 200,000, 100,000 soldiers over there, we're going to lose militarily. We are going to militarily lose. All the metrics are pointing in that direction. More provinces are falling, despite the fact that we dropped more bombs on Afghanistan in 2018 than any other year. That's a staggering, staggering fact, isn't it? Um, look, there was some reporting about how things must be really bad because General Miller was, and you probably saw this, he was photographed or filmed both uh, carrying an M4 rifle from his helicopter to a meeting, um, which is pretty rare, right? Generals don't usually carry around their M4s. Um, so the reporting on this was a little overblown. I mean, the reason he had his M4 is because he was flying to the place, um, and the, pretty much the crew, even including generals, will usually have an M4 on the helicopter just in case they have to set down. Either they're shot down or they set down for mechanical reason because it could be in hostile territory and every bullet counts. But still... You know, beyond the fact that it was a little more common than we're led to believe, it does stand in stark contrast to what I remember when General Petraeus, you know, visited Baghdad and he would walk around in a soft cap and like no body armor uh, or like barely any body armor and a soft cap and no helmet and no weapon through the markets of Baghdad. Now, of course, he was protected on all sides and in the air by American army soldiers, but there are some indications that, like, General Miller, for, for all his talent and for all his try and the good old college try that he's going to give it as, like, the 17th different commander in this war, like, there are some indications that, like, this war is going badly. Um, not only are American casualties up, but Afghan casualties are, are frankly, unsustainable. Frankly, unsustainable. Prediction from Danny? Less than two years from now, Afghanistan falls apart. The army and American advisors control the north and the west, and the Taliban or loose affiliate of Taliban-oriented groups will control the south and the east. We're going to lose militarily, and that country is headed for fracture and another decade of civil war, whether we like it or not. And uh, that's, uh, that's my personal prediction, but um, I'm telling you what, I've been wrong before, but I don't think I'm wrong this time. 
No, it's 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 just about it's it's military race to the bottom now. That's 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 all it is. And I, I yeah, it, it, when I saw that picture, it's like, do people not understand that he goes with a team of guys? You know, is that it, that whoever there? He's certainly not going to be by himself as far as other Americans are concerned, going to any kind of a meeting. But you know, it, it, let's let's take a picture that could be kind of okay corral. And it's in, in the way that the media decides to latch on to it. Yeah, I agree. It was a little overblown. Yeah, yeah. But but there were there were actually important stories in Afghanistan this week. But instead, we got focused on this individual picture, you know. Um, and, and I and I think you know that that's a problem as well. Yeah, no, it, it's it's that seems to be the biggest thing about you know that the. the we talk about military news and, and it's always on a good slant, band slant kind of thing. It's not news where we can come to an individual determination about it, but that, oh, that was really bad. And we throw that in the bad pile without any analysis. And like, you know, again, we spent the entire week staring at this one picture. And yet all these American soldiers and Afghan police officers and et cetera, et cetera, were still bleeding and dying on the ground. But we got us a nice picture and that's what counts. Yep, absolutely. Bottom line, uh, Afghanistan falling apart, on its way to military defeat. Um, it's going to be ugly, but uh, stand by and see what happens. But I'll tell you this, I wouldn't want to be responsible for deciding who the last American is to die for that mistake or for that unwinnable war. Somebody's going to be the last to die. And I don't think it was these three poor gentlemen who killed in an IED, an IED earlier this week. It's going to be someone else because this war has no end in sight. everyone. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. But truth be told, I need your help. No, I don't need you to move a couch or borrow a leaf blower. No, I need you to hit pause on your podcasting app right now and share this episode with somebody you know, somebody who you might think might be receptive to it. It could be a friend or relative who's considering joining the military or a veteran you know who might be interested in in hearing a little more truth in their news about uh, military and veterans. We rely on you all to help us reach as many people as possible. So please hit that pause button right now and share this episode with somebody. Sharon, all done? Good? Okay, good deal. I know Uncle Al will cuss a lot listening to the episode, but he'll appreciate it when the cursing stops. Now I want to mention something about Patreon. We are always in the market for more Patreon supporters. So if you get the chance, please come out and support us. You could support us for as little as a dollar a month. And what do you get for your dollar, you ask? Well, you get a one-minute drop on any topic you choose once a month. Just email us your question or comment, and we'll give it the old Henry Danny breakdown on air guaranteed to have 60 seconds of our time. We may spend more on it. Um, We prefer to do military and veteran topics, but whatever topic you think might be pertinent. And we may spend a whole bunch more time talking about it, depending on the topic. And for contributors a bit north of a dollar a month, we have some bonus episodes, some essays of mine, and a few other things as well. 
we're still in the process of, of building our rewards. So if you have any suggestions for Patreon rewards, please let me know. I'd like to take a moment here and thank by name our four honorary producers that are supporting us on a Patreon. And they are Matthew Ho, Will Arens, Gage Counts, and Fahim Shirazi. Anyone who contributes $10 or more on Patreon each month will be listed as an honorary producer. To everyone else who contributes on Patreon, thank you so much as well. Your response has been really wonderful.